Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'm Vicky Bruce. I'm one of the vice principals at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm delighted to open this evening's Enlightenment lecture with our very distinguished speaker, Professor Stephen Pinker. The Enlightenment lecture series has been running since 2006. This is the seventh lecture in the series. We've had a number of absolutely excellent presentations, including from international um, presentations, from Irene Kahn from Amnesty International, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, President Jose Manuel Barossa, and Daniel Dennett. And we have also had lectures from um, very distinguished professors within the university. Uh, it's really marvelous to have such a wonderful audience here on a Friday evening. And I know that you've come to hear a really excellent presentation. I'm going to hand over the chair of, of this evening's uh, lecture to Professor Geoffrey Pullen, who's Professor of General Linguistics here at the University of Edinburgh, recently recruited to the University of Edinburgh. We're very proud of that. And Professor Pullen is going to introduce our speaker this evening. Thank you, Vicky. It's a privilege and a personal pleasure to introduce the speaker tonight. On behalf of the University of Edinburgh's School of Philosophy, Psychology, and Language Sciences. And I must say, a generation ago, I think some people would have taken those three subjects to be odd bedfellows. I mean, they would have thought philosophers reflecting on fundamental concepts, psychologists running rats through mazes, linguists writing grammars. What do those subjects have to do with each other? People don't ask that question anymore, and it's because of the kind of work that the University of Edinburgh pioneered and that Steve Pinker has hugely strengthened through the research that he's done in his career. Today, you find philosophers arguing about the role of evolutionary arguments in psychology. You find psychologists experimenting on language use. You find linguists studying the evolution of symbolization. You find computer scientists formalizing what philosophers call induction to prove theorems refuting psychological theories about how language learning works. The subjects in the school, in other words, are not just acquainted with each other's problems and methods now, they're intimately intertwined. Steve Pinker has been at the heart of this modern interdisciplinary confluence for nearly 30 years. He's published important work on mathematical learning theory, mental imagery, first language acquisition, morphological productivity, connectionism and its problems, evolutionary psychology, a number of other topics, always with an interdisciplinary insight. Steve is frequently described as a linguist, and we'd be proud to have him. But in fact, he's never had any degrees or positions in linguistics. He trained as a psychologist at McGill and Harvard, and worked in brain and cognitive sciences at MIT, he seems to have picked up his deep understanding of linguistics on the streets, as far as I can tell. His work on language is so well known that I think most linguists don't realize that he could easily qualify for a professorship in any psychology department just on the strength of his work in non-linguistic areas like vision, for example. And as for philosophy, the philosopher Jerry Foda has devoted an entire book just to arguing against Steve's views. I think that should count for something. 
Jerry Fodor hates everybody, but I think he only writes a whole book about the ones who are kind of important. Steve is important. He's perhaps unique in being an elected fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Psychological Society, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Academy of Political and Social Science, and the Linguistic Society of America. He's received four or five honorary doctorates and more prizes than you could pack in a shed. He has an endowed professorship at Harvard and rock star hair. <laughs> but above all else, he is known for his truly excellent popular books, the worldwide bestseller, The Language Instinct, and four others, the newest being his recent book on communicating meaning, The Stuff of Thought. That's his topic tonight. Let me introduce him to you now, Professor Steven Pinker. Uh, thank you, Vicky, and thank you, Jeff. In a uh, bit of irony, my own language skills are a bit impaired this evening because I'm on the verge of losing my voice, but I think I have 45 minutes worth, so I will uh, try to get to the end of the lecture without uh, croaking, uh, literally. Uh, the old <coughs> story of the blind men and the elephant reminds us that any complex subject can be studied in multiple ways. And that is certainly true for a subject as complex as human nature. Anthropology can illuminate human nature by documenting cross-cultural universals, ways that people think and feel and behave in all the world's societies, as well as ways in which societies vary. Biology can document how the process of evolution selected the genes that helped to wire up the brain. My own field, psychology, can get people to disclose their foibles in laboratory studies. <clears throat> and fiction can enlighten us in human nature by showing the universal themes and obsessions in the world's myths and stories. But this evening, I'm going to give you the view from language. What kind of insight we can gain into thought, emotion, and social relations from words and how we use them. I'll use grammar as a window into thought, swearing as a window into emotion, and innuendo as a window into social relationships. In each case, I'll begin with a puzzle in language, show how it reveals a deeper feature of the human mind, using specific examples from the language that we know best, English, but ones that have counterparts in many other languages and that follow an overall logic that can be found in all human languages. So let me begin with language as a window into thought. And the puzzle that I'll begin with comes from a delightful book by Richard Lederer called Crazy English, which notes, among other things, you have to marvel at the unique lunacy of a language where a house can burn up as it burns down and in which you fill in a form by filling it out. Why is it called after dark when it is really after light? Things that we claim are underwater and underground are surrounded by, not not under the water and ground. So the first puzzle is, why do languages talk about the physical world in such crazy ways? And the answer I'll suggest is that there is a theory of physics embedded in our language, a conception of space in our prepositions, a conception of matter in our nouns, a conception of time in our tenses, and a conception of causality in our verbs. And because of time constraints, I'm only going to talk about the conception of time in our tenses this evening. 
Uh, and more generally, understanding the intuitive physics in language helps explain quirks in language itself, <clears throat> but also the mental models that humans use to make sense of their lives. So how is time uh, encoded in language? In many ways, language treats time as a dimension of space and happenings in time as uh, the way it treats matter, as if events were a kind of time stuff that could be shaped and located along this dimension. We see this in the many metaphors for time based on space in the English language, such as the deadline is coming or we're approaching the deadline. We see it in some of the errors that children make in their spontaneous speech, such as, can I have any reading behind the dinner, meaning after dinner. And we see it in the semantics of verb tense. For one thing, in all human languages, time is digitized when it's encoded in tense. That is, no language has tenses for precise intervals, like a, a minute or an hour or a day or a week. Also, time is relative. No language has tenses for absolute times and dates, such as a tense for November or 2007 or after 3 p.m. Uh, instead, location in time is expressed digitally uh, in English with regard to three coarse regions defined relative to the moment of speaking. The first is a, an interval that William James called the specious present, a moving window on life of about three seconds that corresponds to our general sense of what is happening right now. So this three-second window encompasses a... Uh, oops, I don't think that's me. Uh, let me just move my cell phone down just in case. The, this three-second window encompasses a deliberate action, such as a handshake, a quick decision, like how long you alight on a channel while channel surfing before deciding whether to hit the clicker again. It's the approximate duration of the decay of unrehearsed short-term memory. It's the duration of a line of poetry in all the world's cultures. And it's the approximate duration of a musical motif, such as, say, the opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which we don't perceive as a note followed by another note followed by another note, but rather take in as a whole, as a gestalt, which in some sense we perceive all at once. <clears throat> the second interval that uh, tense distinguishes is the past stretching backwards indefinitely. Everything that happened from about three seconds ago, stretching backwards to the Big Bang, is treated equivalently by tense. <clears throat> Um, which is what allowed Groucho Marx to say, I've had a wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> the third interval is the future until eternity. Everything from about three seconds uh, from now till the heat death of the universe is given the same timestamp in uh, language, namely the future tense. Now, not only are there these locations in time, but there are also shapes in time, what linguists call aspect, <clears throat> namely how an event, an event begins, unfolds, and ends in time. Uh, and <clears throat> as uh, shape in space is treated schematically, shape in time is also treated schematically in terms of a few coarse qualitative distinctions. So language <clears throat> distinguishes unbounded or formless activities uh, like shake, which has no clear-cut beginning or end. Uh, it singles out momentaneous events like to swat a fly, which is thought of as if it were instantaneous, that is within the specious present. And then there are 
accomplishments, like to cross the street, which have no clear-cut beginning, but do have a clear-cut ending, namely when the actor's goal has been attained, in this case, getting to the other side. Now, formless activities can be dynamically packaged into bounded events. So just as in the world of matter, we can take a word for a generic amorphous uh, substance or stuff, like beer, which refers to any uh, amount of the stuff, and package it by the use of a uh, word like another. I'll have another beer, or I'll have two beers. Uh, we can do the same thing with time. We can take an uh, uh, unbounded activity, like shake it, and give it an endpoint by adding the particle up. To shake it up means to shake it to completion, to shake it until the ingredients are, are mixed. Uh, and the particle out does something similar. The difference between wringing a shirt and wringing it out means uh, that in, when you wring it out, you wring it until no more liquid can be squeezed from it. It has that natural endpoint. And this solves the puzzle from crazy English of why a house can burn up as it burns down and why you fill in a form by filling it out. Finally, the boundary of an event can be treated <coughs> like an event itself. So just as in the realm of space and matter, I can say I'm going to cut off the end of this ribbon, which when you think about it, geometrically speaking, should be impossible. But we conceive of the end as if it were an object and granted a little bit of adjacent matter to do so. We can do the same thing in time. I can say I'm going to start the end of my talk which also should be impossible if the end of the talk is literally the instant at which I shut up. But if we think of the end of an event as an event itself, granted a little stretch of the adjacent uh, happening, then this is a perfectly sensible sentence. In When Crazy English asks, why is it called after dark when it's really after light, the answer is that the word dark refers to the boundary of an extent of darkness, not to the extent itself, and of course something can occur after that boundary. And note that there's an exact analog from the way language treats space. When Letterer asks, why do we say underwater when the thing is surrounded by water? The answer is that the word water in this case refers to the boundary of a volume of water. And of course, something can be beneath that boundary. So the uh, puzzle in space and the puzzle in time have identical solutions. Well, why is the language of time so crazy? <clears throat> well, the reason that location in time is uh, packaged and quantized the way it is is that stretches of time relative to the moment of speaking have different consequences for knowledge and action. A fancy way of putting it is that tense is not purely a chronological concept, but also packs some metaphysics and epistemology into it. Uh, it specifically, the present tense is really another word for consciousness, for what we're uh, aware of at any given moment of waking life. The past is not just any old stretch of time, but it's that stretch of time which is potentially knowable, which is factual, something uh, happened or it didn't, and which is unchangeable. You can't change the past. Uh, and this is uh, evident in our legal and moral reasoning, such as in the uh, case that was famous in the United States of um, Scott Peterson, uh, who accused of murdering his wife, uh, where investigators noted that Peterson used the past tense when referring to his wife and unborn son before their bodies were found, abruptly correcting himself. His use of the past tense uh, betrayed his state of knowledge and therefore incriminated him. 
And the future also isn't just any arbitrary stretch of time, but it's exactly that stretch of time which is in principle unknowable, which is hypothetical, uh, that is, it doesn't, uh, no event in the future has to happen, and which is willable, we can change the future. And uh, this is evident, for example, in the use of the future tense in rhetoric, such as when Winston Churchill said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender, where the uh, ambiguity between a declaration of resolve and intent and a prediction as to what would happen were intentionally conflated. Well, <clears throat> that's a... Uh, explanation of location in time. Why? What about shape in time? Well, the different ways of packaging events uh, into shapes allows people to agree on how to measure and identify their experience. Experience is a seamless continuum. How do you get two people to agree on which portion of it they are talking and reasoning about? And a good example is the question of how many events took place on September 11, 2001 in New York. You could argue that the answer is one, because a single uh, conspiracy was implemented, or you could answer that the uh, answer is two, because two separate buildings were hit at different times and destroyed at different times. Now, this might strike you as the epitome of pointless semantic nitpicking and hair-splitting, but in fact it is a consequential question because it turns out that the leaseholder for the World Trade Center held insurance policies that entitled him to $3.5 billion per destructive event. <clears throat> if 9-11 was one event, he stood to gain $3.5 billion. If it was two events, he stood to gain $7 billion. And the reason that there's still a hole in the ground in Lower Manhattan instead of a Freedom Tower is that it's taken that long for the lawyers on each side to come to a decision as to how many events took place that day. So when someone challenges me for having written a whole book on semantics and say, what could be the possible value of a dispute in semantics, uh, I have an answer. The value is $3.5 billion. <laughs> so to sum up, um, there's a theory of physics embedded in language, a theory of space in terms of places and objects in digital relationships, uh, a conception of matter in terms of stuff and things extending along one or more dimensions, a conception of time in terms of activities and events located and extended along a single dimension, and a conception of causation in terms of the direct impingement of an actor upon an entity. This way of construing reality differs from real physics, but it corresponds to human goals and purposes, to the causal texture of our environment, to what is knowable, factual, and willable, to ways of packaging and measuring our experience, and to ways of assigning responsibility for events. Well, I'm going to switch now from thought to emotion, and again I'll begin with a linguistic puzzle. This one came to light during the Golden Globe Awards five years ago, in which the group U2 was given an award and accepting it on behalf of the group, its lead singer, Bono, said on live American network television, and I quote, this is really, really fucking brilliant. Now, the network uh, did not bleep out the offending word, and the switchboards lit up like a Christmas tree uh, with uh, viewers protesting this obscenity on the air. The case was sent to the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, which has jurisdiction over the broadcast airwaves in the United States. And after considering the case, somewhat surprisingly, they decided not to 
sanction the network for failing to bleep out the offending word, because according to their guidelines, indecency is, quote, material that describes or depicts sexual or excretory organs or activities, and the fucking and fucking brilliant is, quote, an adjective or expletive to emphasize an exclamation. <laughs> well, a number of uh, conservative congressmen were enraged uh, that such a loophole should exist, and they filed a number of pieces of legislation explicitly designed to close this loophole, of which my favorite is House Resolution 3687, the Clean Airwaves Act, which I downloaded from the U.S. Congress website, and which I will now read to you in its entirety. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that Section 1464 of Title 18 United States Code is amended, one, by inserting A before whoever, and two, the term profane used with respect to language includes the words shit, piss, fuck, cunt, asshole. <clears throat> I'm not making this up. And the phrases cocksucker, motherfucker, and asshole. <clears throat> compound use, including hyphenated compounds of such words and phrases, with each other or with other words or phrases, and other grammatical forms of such words and phrases, including verb, adjective, gerund, participle, and infinitive forms. Unfortunately, uh, the fucking and fucking brilliant, if anything, is an adverb, and that's the one part of speech they forgot to include on the list. <laughs> so... So, grammar matters. <laughs> the puzzle is, why do people get so upset about hearing certain words? It's not as if any adult, or for that matter any child, hasn't already heard the words. And indeed, the use of profane speech has been one of the main legal battlegrounds of free speech in the U.S. and the U.K. for much of the 20th century, continuing to the 21st because the uh, constitutionality of the Clean Airwaves Act is currently before the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, to understand this, we have to know something about the language of swearing, including the cognitive neuroscience of swearing, namely what happens in the brain when a person perceives or produces a taboo word. And there are a few things that we know that, first of all, taboo words tend to activate brain areas associated with negative emotion. These include the right hemisphere, which uh, we independently know to be associated with negative emotion. In production, uh, they involve the basal ganglia, which are two um, clusters of nuclei, uh, evolutionarily quite ancient, buried deep within the brain, uh, and which are uh, malfunction in uh, Tourette syndrome, which is marked uh, in some people by the involuntary uh, outbursts of taboo language. In perception, taboo words tend to activate the amygdalas, two uh, small almond-shaped organs buried deep within the temporal lobe, which respond to threatening stimuli, such as an angry face or a dangerous animal. Also, there's reason to believe from cognitive psychology that taboo words, like words in general, are processed involuntarily. That is, you can't choose to hear a taboo word as just a stretch of sound, nor uh, look at one as just a bunch of squiggles on the page. They automatically register in their brain with their meanings, including the negative emotion clinging to them. Um, and so... That allows us to characterize swearing as the use of language as a weapon to force a listener to think an unpleasant or at least an emotionally charged thought. 
which breaks down the question of swearing into two questions. First of all, what kinds of concepts trigger negative emotions? And secondly, why would a speaker want to trigger negative emotion in the brain of a listener? And I'll answer those in turn. Well, anyone who speaks more than one language knows that the actual content of taboo words differs significantly from one language to another. You can't take the cannot take the curses of one language and translate them into another language and hope for the same effect. Nonetheless, linguists who have looked for patterns of taboo language find that they fall into a small number of categories across languages, each of them associated with a negative emotion. Uh, so there are often taboo words for the supernatural, such as our own uh, mild curses, damn, hell, and Jesus Christ. These tend to be more potent in religious societies. Uh, I grew up in Quebec, which uh, at the time was a traditional Catholic society, and the worst thing that you could say to someone is a cursed chalice or a cursed tabernacle. Uh, as I said, they don't really come through in translation. Uh, and these words evoke the emotions of awe and fear of the uh, power of uh, supernatural entities. There are many taboo words associated with bodily effluvia and the organs that secrete them. Uh, you all know what they are. Uh, and it's not surprising that these should elicit negative emotion because uh, epidemiologists tell us that effluvia are major vectors of disease. Many parasites and pathogens find it convenient to hitch a ride from one body to another via bodily secretions. We've evolved a, a defense against being infected by this route, the emotion of disgust, and that is the emotion that these words can elicit. There are many taboo words in, in a variety of languages for disease, death, and infirmity themselves, such as the old curses, a pox on you, and a plague on both your houses from uh, Romeo and Juliet, or the Polish and Yiddish curse, cholera, cholera, uh, and in fact, there's even a bit of taboo associated with the word for our most dreaded uh, malady, cancer, and one often reads in an obituary that so-and-so passed away from a long illness, where both the word die and the word cancer are too uh, emotionally evocative, almost taboo, and have to be replaced by euphemisms. And uh, these words evoke the, evoke the emotions of dread of disease, infirmity, and death. There are many taboo words surrounding sexuality. Again, you all know what they are. Um, and at this point, many people say, how does that fit into the theory that a taboo language triggers negative emotions? Isn't sex a source of uh, wholesome mutual pleasure between consenting adults? Well, it can be, but in the full sweep of human experience, uh, sex uh, is associated with a much wider variety of experiences, including exploitation, illegitimacy, incest, jealousy, spousal abuse, cuckoldry, desertion, child abuse, feuding, and rape. It's not surprising that people should have strong emotions when it comes to sexuality, which we can call a revulsion at depravity. Finally, there are often taboo words in languages for disfavored people in groups, for infidels, cripples, enemies, and subordinated peoples, including the most taboo word in contemporary American English, which is not the S word nor the F word, but rather the N word, nigger, uh, one of a number of offensive words for racial and uh, ethnic minorities. And these words evoke the emotions of hatred and contempt. So these are some of the negative emotions that 
uh, language can elicit. The question is, why would someone uh, want to do that? Why do people try to evoke negative emotion in listeners? And it turns out that there isn't a single answer to that question, because there are lots of reasons that one person might want to press the negative emotion buttons of another. And indeed, there are five very distinct ways in which people swear. The first is dysphemistic swearing, uh, where these words are used in their literal senses. So what is the difference between shit and feces, or fuck and copulate, or cunt and vagina, which are literally synonyms, but obviously differ strongly in their emotional impact? Well, you all know what a euphemism is. The uh, rationale of a euphemism is we have to talk about this for a specific purpose, but let's avoid thinking about how awful it is. The less known term of a dysphemism is uh, based on the idea, I want you to think about how awful this is. And the best way of appreciating the difference is to ponder the 34 euphemisms for feces in contemporary English. Now, people don't like to uh, think about feces any more than they like to touch it or smell it. Uh, nonetheless, we are incarnate beings. Feces is a part of human life, and there is no way that you can get through life without at least occasionally having to confer on what to do with it. So <clears throat> to solve this problem, uh, the English language has accumulated a number of ways of referring to the stuff while making it perfectly clear to your listener why you're bringing it up and specifically that you're not doing so in order to offend them. So we've got generic terms like waste and fecal matter, formal terms from Latin like feces and excrement, terms that you use with children during toilet training like poop and doo-doo, terms that you use about children during toilet training like soil and dirt, uh, terms used in a medical context like stool, terms used uh, with animals, depending on whether you're referring to large units like pats and chips, small units like droppings. The context is scientific, as in scat and coprolites, or agriculture, as in manure, guano, and dung. And nowadays, in this golden age of recycling, uh, the need has arisen for a term to refer to human feces recycled for use of, as of uh, uh, fertilizer, and so we have night soil, humanure, and my favorite, human biosolids. <clears throat> now, we all need euphemisms, and if uh, a person used the wrong euphemism in a particular context, the results would be rather odd. For example, I think you would do a double take if at the end of a medical appointment, the nurse said to you, uh, the medical lab will need a doo-doo sample. <laughs> or if you uh, opened the... Um, uh, to the gardening section of a newspaper, and it advised you, for nice plump tomatoes, fertilize your plants with cattle bowel movement. That wouldn't work. Um, but we also need dysphemisms for those moments in life in which the point for politeness has passed, and you really do want to rub your listener's face in how awful some experience or activity or substance is. For example, if some a uh, thoughtless boor is allowing his dog to foul your garden, you might open the window and yell, will you pick up your dog shit? Uh, you might commiserate with a friend. Um, the plumber was working under the sink and I had to look at the crack in his arse the whole time. Uh, one can imagine a, uh, a wife snooping on her husband's email and confronting him by saying, so while I've been taking care of the kids, you've been fucking your secretary. Uh, an offensive word for an occasion in which the offense is intended and for which the English language provides a, uh, a solution. 
Well, th that's how we use these words in their literal senses, but there's a variety of ways in which taboo words are used uh, not so literally. Uh, such as an abuse of swearing, the use of the negative emotion surrounding these words to intimidate or humiliate someone. Now, there's a whole field of scholarship called maledicta, the study of imprecations in uh, English and other languages. And the scholars who uh, study maledicta have often noted the sheer ingenuity that goes into abuse of swearing. In fact, all of the classic poetic devices, metaphor, imagery, connotation, alliteration, meter, and rhyme, are on full display in the crafting of obscene imprecations. For example, you can use metaphor to liken people to offensive bodily effluvia and the organs and accessories associated with them. Uh, again, you all know what these terms are. Uh, you can advise people to engage in undignified activities, taking advantage of the imagery associated with them, such as eat shit, shove it up your ass, or fuck yourself. Uh, you can accuse them of being the kind of person that engages habitually in undignified sexual activities, and for every undignified sexual activity, there is an obscene curse, including incest, sodomy, fellatio, uh, masturbation, and my favorite is from the uh, domain of bestiality. And this is a curse that hasn't been used recently, uh, but I would like to see it revived. Uh, <clears throat> so the next time someone um, steals the parking space for which you've been patiently waiting, I suggest that you uh, advise the person to kiss the cunt of a cow, <laughs> which is, uh, has not been in use since the late 16th century but I think not only brings some fresh imagery to this rather cliched domain, but um, has, I think, rather pleasing alliteration and, and meter. Well, a third way in which people swear is idiomatic swearing. The strange expressions like shit out of luck, get your shit together, piss poor, pissed off, my ass, a pain in the ass, sweet fuck all, what the fuck, where it's completely unclear what those words are actually doing in those idioms. Well, what they're doing is being used strictly for their ability to press uh, emotion buttons, to arouse the listener's attention, to assert a macho or cool or swaggering pose, or to express informality, to say this is the kind of setting in which we don't have to watch what we say. And related to idiomatic swearing is emphatic swearing, such as Bono's, this is really, really fucking brilliant. Uh, also unclear what the fucking is supposed to mean in that uh, phrase. And related forms like he thinks he's a fucking scoutmaster and Rip Van fucking Winkle. <laughs> now, we all know people who rely too much on emphatic uh, swearing. And in, in fact, their style of speech has been dubbed fuck patois, uh, as in the story of the soldier who said, I come home to my fucking house after three fucking years of the fucking war, and what do I fucking well find? My wife in bed engaging in illicit sexual relations with a male. Uh, then there's cathartic swearing, this strange phenomenon in which when some misfortune befalls us, uh, we <clears throat> knock a glass of beer into our lap or slice our thumb together with a bagel. The topic of our conversation abruptly switches to theology, excretion, or sexuality. Well, what's going on there? Uh, if you ask people, what they say is it lets off steam or it releases tension, the hydraulic theory of the uh, nervous system. 
Uh, unfortunately, neurobiologists tell us that there is not literally a boiler of uh, pressurized fluid in the skull and a network of valves and pipes. They're just brain cells that fire in patterns. And so this is no more than a metaphor. A more satisfying neurobiological account is called the rage circuit theory, according to which mammals have evolved a reflex in which when the animal is suddenly injured or confined, it will erupt in a furious struggle accompanied by a sudden angry noise, uh, presumably to startle or intimidate an attacker. And anyone who has sat down on their cat or uh, caught the tail of a dog in a, in a door is well familiar with this reflex. The theory is <clears throat> that in human evolution, um, this, the output of this reflex has been patched into the input of our language system, uh, which vies for control over our vocal tract. And so, and so instead of just yelping or howling, we articulate our distress with an aggressive word uh, that ordinarily we inhibit ourselves from producing. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to the rage circuit theory, but it's only part of the story. Because cathartic swearing is conventional. Uh, it's specific to a language. You have to learn how to swear in a particular language. In many languages, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you shout out the equivalent of whore or cunt. And though those are taboo terms in English, it's just not what you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer. Also, they're appropriate to the kind of misfortune. If someone cuts you off in traffic, you might yell asshole, but if you spill a glass of wine into your lap, you'd probably yell something else. Um, and this uh, motivates the response cry theory of, of uh, swearing from the great sociologist Irving Goffman, who pointed out that cathartic swearing is communicative. It conveys to bystanders that you're currently in the throes of a strong uh, emotional state. And as such, patterns with other response cries, uh, such as aha, mm, ouch, whoops, wow, yes, yuck, and several dozen others that also convey that you're currently uh, under the um, spell of a strong uh, negative emotion. So to sum up, uh, humans are prone to strong negative emotions of the supernatural, disgust at bodily effluvia, dread of disease, hatred of disfavored people in groups, revulsion at depraved sexual acts. Nonetheless, people sometimes want to impose these thoughts on others, whether to gain their attention, to intimidate and humiliate them, to remind them of the awfulness of these objects and activities, or to advertise one's strong reactions to misfortunes. Well, the third phenomenon that I'll talk about will illustrate language uh, as a window into social relations. And again, I'll begin with a puzzle in language. This one is taken from the film Fargo, from an early scene in which a kidnapper who has a hostage tied up in the back seat of, the car, of his car is inconveniently pulled over by a police officer because he's missing his plates. Uh, he's asked to hand over his driver's license. He proffers his wallet with a license showing and a $50 bill extending ever so slightly. And he says to the officer, I was thinking that maybe the best thing would be to take care of it here in Brainerd which, of course, everyone recognizes as a veiled bribe. Now, this is a, an example of what linguists call an indirect speech act, a case in which we don't blurt out what we mean in so many words, but we veil our intentions in innuendo, counting on the listener to read between the lines and infer what we really mean. And we do this all the time. For example, if you could pass the guacamole, that would be awesome. Uh, when you think about it, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but we recognize it as a polite request. 
Uh, anyone who has sat through a fundraising dinner is familiar with euphemistic snoring, such as, we're counting on you to show leadership in our campaign for the future. Uh, that is, give us money. <laughs> Would you like to come up and see my etchings? This has been recognized as a sexual come-on for so long that in the 1930s, James Thurber drew a New Yorker cartoon in which a hapless man says to his date, you wait here and I'll bring the etchings down. <laughs> and there's a nice story you got there. A real shame if something happened to it, which any fan of The Sopranos will recognize as a veiled threat. So the puzzle is, why are bribes, requests, seductions, solicitations, and threats so often veiled when both parties know exactly what they mean? Again, it's not just an intellectual puzzle, but it has practical importance, such as in the crafting and interpretation of the language of diplomacy, and in the prosecution of extortion, bribery, and sexual harassment, which are often made in veiled, indirect language rather than blurted out directly. It turns out to be a surprisingly uh, difficult problem, but uh, I think the solution requires at least three ideas. The logic of plausible deniability, the logic of relationship negotiation, and the logic of mutual knowledge, which I'll explain in turn. So let me begin with what game theorists call the identification problem. Namely, how do you figure out the rational course of action when the outcome depends on another intelligent agent, but you don't know the agent's values? And bribing a police officer is a paradigm case. So imagine you're pulled over by an officer, and consider that what would happen if your only two options were to offer a naked bribe in so many words, or remaining silent and not bribing at all. What will lead to the better outcome? Well, it depends. It depends on what kind of officer you're facing. If you're facing a dishonest officer who would accept the bribe, you have the very high payoff of going free. On the other hand, if you're unlucky enough to uh, be facing an honest officer, he would not only rebuff the bribe, but might arrest you for bribery. So if you compare the very high payoff uh, and the very high cost, depending on the unknown of what officer you're facing, it's not clear uh, whether it's more advantageous to offer the bribe or to remain silent. But now imagine that you had a third option, a veiled bribe, such as I was wondering if perhaps we could take care of it here without going to court or doing a lot of paperwork. Well, in this case, a dishonest officer <clears throat> could sniff out the bribe behind the innuendo, and you'd get the high payoff of going free. An honest officer could not make a bribery charge stick in court by the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, so the worst thing that you would get is the traffic ticket. So the veiled bribe combines the high payoff of bribing a dishonest officer with the relatively small cost of failing to bribe an honest officer. It combines those options in a single row, therefore giving you the best of both worlds, and so the veiled bribe is the rational choice. Uh, this is, I think, what we mean when we use the expression plausible deniability. Uh, and the next Part of the problem, though, is why do people resort to indirect speech, even in non-legal contexts, uh, such as everyday bribery, where they're not facing uh, an arrest or a fine? Now, you might say, when would a law-abiding, uh, upstanding citizen such as myself ever be tempted to offer a bribe in everyday life? Well, how about this? 
You want to go to the hottest restaurant in town. You have no reservation. Why not slip the maitre d' a $20 bill in exchange for being seated immediately? This was the assignment given to the writer Bruce Filer by an editor at Gourmet Magazine, who dared him to try it and write up his experience for the magazine. And as a psychologist, I found the, the uh, write-up quite fascinating. Um, first of all, the task was filled, filled him with extreme anxiety. Though, as far as I know, no one has ever been arrested and sent to jail for the crime of attempting to bribe a maitre d', uh, he begins his article as follows. I am nervous, truly nervous. As the taxi bounces through the trendier neighborhoods of Manhattan, I keep imagining the possible retorts of some incensed maitre d'. What kind of establishment do you think this is? How dare you insult me? Do you think you can get in with that? Uh, secondly, when he did screw up the courage to offer the bribe, he instinctively did it using indirect speech. He would hold the $20 bill discreetly under his uh, palm, and looking the maitre d' in the eye would say something like this, I hope you can fit us in, or can you speed up my weight, or I was wondering if you might have a cancellation. And the third interesting finding was the uh, outcome, which is that it worked every time. Uh, <laughs> as he put it, we were seated in between two and four minutes to the astonishment of my date. So what's going on there? What are the intangible costs that drive people to indirect speech in cases where there are no tangible costs and benefits as there are in the bribing, case of bribing an officer? Well, here's a theory from the anthropologist Alan Fisk that human relationships fall into three types. Each involves a different rule for distributing resources, each has a different evolutionary basis, and each applies naturally to certain dyads but can be extended to others. And people are always mindful of which one applies. So there's uh, dominance, uh, the relationship that works by the ethos, don't mess with me, which presumably we inherited from the dominance hierarchies that are ubiquitous among primates. Uh, there's communality, the ethos of share and share alike, which uh, is uh, presumably a product of kin selection and mutualism, and which is expressed most naturally among kin and between spouses and among close friends, the kind of indiscriminate sharing that goes on within a household. And then there's reciprocity, the rule, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, uh, which the tit-for-tat exchange of goods and services in a business-like relationship, which presumably evolved via reciprocal altruism. Now, behavior that's acceptable in one relationship type is an, can be anomalous in another. For example, at a um, cocktail party, you might go over to your uh, husband or wife and help yourself to a prawn off their plate. But you wouldn't go up to your boss and help yourself to a prawn off their plate, because what you can get away with in a communal relationship, you can't get away with in a dominance relationship. Likewise, at the end of a dinner party, if you were to pull out your wallet and offer to pay the host for the cost of the meal, uh, that wouldn't be perceived as fair. That would be perceived as, uh, uh, as uncouth, because uh, the whole point of a communal relationship, as expressed in a dinner party, is that everyone shares, and the kind of exchange that is calculated uh, in a restaurant is inappropriate for a kind of relationship based on communality. Now, those are cases where everyone knows what kind of relationship is in force. In cases where the two parties might have a divergent understanding and the relationships are ambiguous, a 
divergent understanding can be costly. It can lead to an unpleasant emotion, the one that we call awkwardness. For example, there can be awkward moments in a workplace when a uh, student or employee doesn't know whether he can address a supervisor on a first-name basis or invite him out after work for a beer. Uh, it's well known that good fr uh, I'm sorry, that's the clash between dominance and friendship. It's well known that good friends should never engage in a major business, uh, business transaction, like one of them selling his car to the other, that the very act of negotiating a price can put a strain on the friendship. Uh, the contrast between dominance and sex defines the battleground of sexual harassment, as when a supervisor solicits sex from an employee. And even the contrast between the relationship of friendship and sex gives rise to the anxiety of dating when it's ambiguous which of those two applies. The result is a social identification problem where the emotional costs of awkwardness from a mismatched relationship type can duplicate the payoff matrix of the legal identification problem that we saw in bribing a police officer. And bribing a maitre d' can, uh, uh, shows why. Where here the clashes between the authority relationship or dominance relationship that a maitre d' ordinarily wields over his restaurant fiefdom, according to which he seats people when and where he chooses, and the reciprocity relationship that you are introducing by the bribe, according to which he'd be obligated to seat you in exchange for accepting the bribe. So once again, if your only choices were to utter a bribe in uh, so many words or not to bribe at all, then the outcome would depend on what kind of maitre d' you would have. A corrupt maitre d' who would accept the bribe, consummate the reciprocity relationship and show you to a quick table. On the other hand, you might be facing a scrupulous maitre d' who would rebuff the bribe, that is, insist on the dominance relationship while you were offering reciprocity by saying something like, how dare you insult me? What kind of establishment do you think this is? And so you'd be facing the high emotional cost of awkwardness. Given the potential high payoff and the potential high cost, it's not clear which of these two options is more attractive compared to the relatively small cost of a long wait for a table, but by agreeing to the dominance relationship, one avoids the awkwardness emotion. However, if you have a third option, such as I was wondering whether you might have a cancellation, the corrupt maitre d' <clears throat> could sniff out the bribe, consummate the reciprocity relationship, and show you to a quick table. A scrupulous maitre d' could choose to let it pass, uh, allowing you both to maintain the dominance relationship. You get the very high payoff of bribing a corrupt maitre d' with a relatively small cost of failing to bribe a scrupulous maitre d' combined in a single row. Well, there's one remaining problem, which is why do we resort to indirectness even when there is no real uncertainty? You all now are in possession of the knowledge that all maitre d's are bribable. Uh, nonetheless, <clears throat> I suspect that if you ever did try to bribe a maitre d', you still probably wouldn't blurt it out, but would couch it in uh, indirect speech. Um, also, people aren't naive. It's hard to imagine a grown woman who would really be in doubt as to what her date meant if he said, would you like to come up and see my etchings? Nonetheless, there is still something more comfortable about putting it that way than uh, putting it as a blatant sexual overture. So what, what is going on there when the deniability is not, at the end of the day, really plausible? Why should an obvious innuendo still feel more comfortable than a direct overture that is in some sense on the record? And here's an illustration from uh, another movie of the puzzle. 
In an early scene of When Harry Met Sally, the protagonists have just met. Harry makes a comment that Sally interprets as a sexual come-on. She accuses him, you're coming on to me. <laughs> he says, what do you want me to do about it? I take it back, okay? I take it back. She says, you can't take it back. He says, why not? She said, because it's already out there. He said, oh, geez, what are we supposed to do? Call the cops? It's already out there. Well, this is a puzzle. What is the status of an overture that is out there or on the record that makes it feel so much more awkward than a veiled overture that's conveyed indirectly? And I think the one key to the puzzle is a concept that linguists and economists call mutual knowledge or sometimes common knowledge, which has to be distinguished from individual knowledge. In individual knowledge, A knows X and B knows X. In mutual knowledge, A knows X, B knows X, A knows that B knows X, B knows that A knows X, A knows that B knows that A knows X, uh, ad infinitum. And this turns out to be uh, an important difference. For example, uh, why do democracies enshrine freedom of assembly as a fundamental right, and why, are, uh, why do dictatorships often try to disperse public demonstrations, even peaceful ones, fearing that a political revolution could be instigated by the mere act of people assembling peacefully? Well, the reason is that without an assembly, everyone might uh, detest the local despot, but no one uh, has any idea uh, whether other people detest them at the same time. When people show up in a public square in which everyone can see everyone else, everyone now knows that everyone else knows that everyone else knows that everyone knows that everyone detests the despot. That can give them a collective power to challenge the dominance of the uh, dictatorship, <clears throat> which otherwise would be able to pick off dissenters one at a time. Another example, the emperor's new clothes is a story about mutual knowledge. When the little boy said the emperor is naked, he wasn't telling anyone anything that they didn't already know, anything that they couldn't see with their own eyeballs. Nonetheless, he was changing the state of their knowledge, because now everyone knew that everyone else knew that the emperor was naked. Moreover, everyone knew that everyone else knew that everyone else knew, and so on. Once again, that gave them the collective power to challenge the dominance of the emperor. The moral is that explicit language is an excellent way of creating mutual knowledge. And here's the hypothesis. Innuendos, even obvious ones, merely provide individual knowledge, whereas direct speech provides mutual knowledge, and relationships are maintained or nullified by mutual knowledge of the relationship type. So if Harry were to say, would you like to come up and see my etchings, and Sally uh, declines, then Sally, not being naive, knows that she's turned down a sexual overture, and Harry knows that she's turned down a sexual overture. But does Sally know that Harry knows? Sally could be thinking, maybe Harry thinks I'm naive. And does Harry know that Sally knows that he knows? Harry could be wondering, maybe Sally thinks I'm dense. There's no mutual knowledge, and so they can maintain the fiction of a friendship. Whereas if Harry were to have said, would you like to come up and have sex? Now, Harry knows that Sally knows that Harry knows that Sally knows. They cannot maintain the fiction of a friendship. And I th uh, think this is what's behind the intuition that with overt speech, you can't take it back. It's out there. So to sum up this part of the, of the uh, lecture, people often have to convey messages while unsure of their relationship. Indirect speech can minimize the risks in legal contexts with tangible costs, such as bribes and threats. And the same thing can happen in everyday life because relationship mismatches can have an emotional cost. 
Moreover, indirect speech prevents individual knowledge from becoming mutual knowledge, and mutual knowledge is the basis of a relationship. Okay, well, finally, I'm going to begin the end of the talk. Now, uh, psychologists, uh, when uh, characterizing what they do, often frame it in terms of uh, how a Martian biologist would describe our species, free of preconceptions and just characterizing us uh, like any of the other species on Earth. Today's question is, how would a Martian linguist describe our species, trying to characterize our ways just by words and how we use them? Well, I think that he could say a lot. When it comes to human cognition, he could conclude that humans have an intuitive theory of the physical world. They identify places in space and locate objects relative to them in qualitative terms. They construe matter as formless stuff or discrete things which are stretched along one or more dimensions. They order and package events in time relative to their own moment of consciousness. And they explain events by identifying their causes, namely an actor that impinges upon an entity. Human intuitive physics differs from real physics, but it helps them to reason and agree about aspects of reality relative to their purposes, the causal texture of their environment, what they can know, change, and will, how they package and quantify their experience, and how they assign moral and legal responsibility. Humans not only have ideas, but they steep them with emotion. They stand in awe of deities. They are terrified by disease, death, and infirmity. They are revolted by bodily secretions. They loathe enemies, traitors, and subordinate peoples. And they are appalled by depraved sexual acts. Despite having negative reactions to so many thoughts, humans willingly inflict these thoughts on one another. To remind them of the unpleasant nature of certain things, to intimidate or denigrate them, to get their attention, or to advertise their reactions to life's misfortunes. Finally, when it comes to social life, humans are very, very touchy about their relationships. With some of their fellows, typically kin, lovers, and friends, humans freely share and do favors. With others, they jockey for dominance, and with still others, they trade goods and services. People distinguish these relationships sharply, and when one person breaches the logic of a relationship with another, they both suffer an emotional cost. Nonetheless, humans often risk these breaches, sometimes to get on with the business of life, sometimes to renegotiate a relationship. Finally, humans think a lot about what other humans think about them, and their relationships are ratified by this mutual knowledge. They know that others know that they know what kind of relationship they share. As a result, to preserve their relationships while transacting the business of their lives, humans often engage in hypocrisy and taboo. And those are just some of the ways in which language can serve as a window into human nature. Thank you very much. Well, I think we can devote a few minutes to questions. When Steve talks, there's a thousand questions in your head straight away. Uh, we obviously labor under some difficulties here. The questions will be, have to be amplified. I think we have some traveling microphones. If someone could 
raise their hand if, with a question and we can try and get a microphone to them. There's a person over here. Um, in the selfish gene, uh, Dawkins um, outlines his theory of mimetics, which um, doesn't seem to be talked about so much these days, apart from a few kind of vigorous defenders. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this. Uh, do you think it's pseudoscience or legitimate or um, just generally what your thoughts were? Thank you. Uh, yes, no, I, I don't think it's pseudoscience, although it, it has been um, sort of disappointing in terms of how many results from memetics have arisen in the 32 years since the idea was proposed. Uh, it's clearly a real phenomenon that there is cultural transmission and that certain properties of ideas contribute to uh, the likelihood that they'll be propagated. I think what's missing from memetics is uh, psychology, that there's a strong disanalogy between um, memes and genes, between memetics and uh, biological evolution. And that is that uh, in the case of biological evolution, <coughs> the source of variation is random in the sense that it doesn't a priori correlate with fitness. If it did, then we would all be Lamarckians and we wouldn't need Darwin's theory of natural selection. You've got, got a random mutation. In the case of memes, though, the generation of new memes is not, not random. Uh, that is, new ideas don't simply come about from typos and copying errors and um, Mondegreens and, other, and uh, listening errors and so on. When a new uh, cultural product comes into existence, it's because someone composed it or drew it or um, thought about it. And even if it is true that there is a kind of epidemiology of songs and books and ideas and words, so some are more, some spread through a population, others don't, uh, you have to take into account the qualities of that meme. And to do that, you have to take into account the brain that came up with the meme. Uh, and I, the, so the question is, how much of the variance or success of different kinds of ideas simply consists of differential copying, as in the, we know to be the case in biological evolution, and how much of the complexity comes from the brain power that went into it. As a psychologist, I'm, I naturally like to concentrate on the brain power that actually composes the work of culture, and I think that without acknowledging that, the theory of memes is, is missing the main generator of complexity and is incomplete. Do we have another question <clears throat> uh, back here? The microphone is with you. Thank you. Yes, uh, when you were talking about sexual swearing, you located, as it were, the offense of that with the idea of depraved sexual acts. But I think there's maybe another aspect to it, which is that even the most conventional sexual acts are hedged about with taboo in order to preserve particular social orders. And sexual swearing, in a way, is breaching, blatantly breaching this social order. And that's perhaps another aspect of where it becomes offensive, where it uh, generates negative emotions in a listener. Uh, yes, although um, uh, the phenomenon by which <coughs> a sexuality is subject to societal taboos and shame and so on uh, itself needs an explanation. And I think the fact that so many sexual acts involve conflicts of interest, that is, someone is hurt, uh, it explains why so many societies surround sexuality with some degree of taboo or restriction, which in turn uh, is what makes the th thoughts and the words for sexuality uh, so emotionally charged and often taboo. So I wouldn't disagree that there is a 
uh, a social prohibition, but in a way that's almost restating the original phenomenon of taboo and raises the question, why sex? Why don't people have sex as casually as they play tennis or eat together? These taboos create a social structure which gives some people power. For example, giving some men power over women, constraining women's sexuality, and so forth. So that's not to do with people being hurt. It's to do with controlling other human beings. Well, yes, I think the... um, Sexuality is subject to conflicts, uh, to uh, some people trying to control the sexuality of others for, I think, fairly intelligible evolutionary reasons. Uh, Namely, a lot is at stake in sexuality, one's own biological um, uh, prospects. And so uh, it's to people's biological advantage to regulate what other people are doing sexually. Uh, And we see that in... in, um, conflicts of, of mating, conflicts of um, jealousy, uh, and a, a number of other uh, aspects of sexuality that um, are, because they're biologically consequential, they're psychologically and sociologically consequential, and that uh, bleeds into the words that we use to refer to those actions. Sorry, I, I don't wish to take microphone time away from real questioners, but uh, I thought you might be amused rather than offended to learn that the standard euphemism in my house for a shitty nappy or diaper is rhyming, sta- rhyming slang for a stinker. It, we call it a <laughs> Stephen <laughs> Pinker. <laughs> I, see, I see where this is going, yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, just, just change that euphemism as soon as you can, okay? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Another question. That wasn't really a question. There is somebody here. Um, Thanks. Um, Are you suggesting that the principles that you've enunciated, particularly in in your summaries, are invariant across time and across societies, or do you see change to some extent in these principles, either over time or across societies? Um, There's enormous change across time and variation across societies in which of these principles governs which words and constructions. But I would like to argue that the principles that I ended with are, uh, are universal. That is, they are, those are characteristics of human nature as it leaves its stamp on language. Although, uh, what, what um, domains are uh, uh, made into taboo words vary from one culture to another, one period to another. Uh, which tenses of the possible ones are actually used in a given language varies. Uh, which uh, kinds of dyads and what realms of human exchange are assigned to the different relationship types varies across language. For example, do you have an authority relationship with your parents or is it a communal relationship? What about with your graduate school teacher? What about with your undergraduate teacher? What about with a sales clerk? Those are things that do vary, but the, uh, the trichotomy of relationships the inventory of negative emotions, the phenomenon of taboo, the quantization of time, those I would suggest are universal. We've run out of our quantized time. I want to call now on Professor Vicki Bruce uh, one more time. Thank you, Vicki. Well, it's my job to say thank you. It's not going to be difficult, is it? Um, just before I do say thank you, um, At the end, there will be a limited opportunity for those of you who have purchased Professor Pinker's book to have them signed at the front. We haven't 
got hours and hours, but if you would like to have your book signed, um, then we'll do that at the end. But first, I want to say thank you. Well, <clears throat> a lecture at six o'clock on a Friday is a bit of a challenge. Um, there's two things that it does. It marks the end of a long week and the start of a weekend. What a great way to start the weekend. University of Edinburgh badges its campaign, in which we hope you may all provide leadership in due course. <laughs> Enlightenment in the 21st century. And our lectures play to this theme. And in the Enlightenment, old and new, different disciplines are brought to bear on problems, old problems, enduring problems, brand new problems, to provide new insights. And Professor Pinker has demonstrated our Enlightenment theme brilliant, brilliantly. He's brought together linguistics, emotion, and social psychology. I'm a psychologist. That is really, really clever. Wow. I'm tempted to say, fucking brilliant. <laughs> Enlightenment lectures also allow us to display public intellectuals, but not all public intellectuals give such wonderful entertainment as well as learning. Not all, perhaps, have learned that people will think and remember things when they've been made to laugh as well as think during the lecture. Rarely has the McEwen Hall generated such laughter. Never do I think it's heard such language. <laughs> but the McEwen Hall was built on the profits from beer. So it seems very fitting to have such a lecture in the McEwen Hall on a Friday night. And I'm sure you'll all join me in thanking Professor Pinker for a truly outstanding lecture. Mm -hmm.